This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio. Today is the last show in our series on the experience of incarceration and the stigma that people experience after release. To close the series, we're bringing together several different voices on this subject. We'll be starting with a conversation with a literature professor, and later, two stories from listeners and some reflections from me on this series. We wanted to connect the themes we've been exploring about imprisonment and about life after prison to big ideas in Western civilization. And we decided to turn to Dostoevsky, the author of the classic Crime and Punishment. So I am going to be interviewing Professor Robin Foyer Miller, who is a professor of Russian and comparative literature at Brandeis University in Boston. Welcome to Safe Space Radio. Oh, thank you so much, Anne, for inviting me. Tell me a little, I understand that Dostoevsky wrote a little bit from personal experience about imprisonment. Why don't you start by telling me a little of his story? Ah, well, when Dostoevsky was a young man, he was involved in a political group called the Petrushevsky Circle, that, um, and the members of that circle were arrested. And he actually spent a year in solitary confinement in St. Petersburg. Um, and at the end of that year, he was sentenced to death. He experienced riding through the streets of St. Petersburg in an open cart, um, thinking that he was on his way to his own execution. At the last minute, a uh, horseman from the Tsar appeared, and his sentence was commuted to hard labor in Siberia in a prison camp. And in fact, Dostoevsky, who was not a physically strong person by any means, he made a tremendous journey in winter across Russia in chains, and he arrived um, in Siberia at a prison camp where he spent the next four years as a convict. Maybe it would be worth, because not everyone read Crime and Punishment in high school or college, (laughs) why don't you give us just a very concise summary of what the book is about? Well, the book is about a young man named Raskolnikov, who um, is a student in the university, and he's very poor. Um, He's very concerned about his family, who have sacrificed enormous amounts for him to be a university student, so it's a very contemporary situation. And he has been pawning things with an old pawnbroker, who is a very unpleasant and distasteful old woman. And early on in the novel, Raskolnikov decides to kill this pawnbroker and to um, take all the cash and jewelry that he will find in her apartment and use it to turn his life around. Um, And he plans it very, very carefully, and everything goes according to plan. And um, at the last moment, he ends up murdering someone else as well, which was unplanned. Um, and from this point on, things don't don't go as planned, um, and he finds himself in a series of terrible predicaments. What's so astonishing about the, the early parts of this book is that here Raskolnikov commits this truly brutal double murder with an axe, um, but the reader is already so quickly invested in him as a character that you find yourself 
in some ways, you know, hoping that he'll get away with the crime. So that's a very interesting aspect of the novel because the reader is drawn in so close to Raskolnikov that, you know, you begin to undergo some of the stages of his thought processes with him. The only thing I would say about that for me as a reader it was a lot more mixed than that. I mean, I have to say, I found in the beginning I had to force myself to read it because he's he's described as such a tortured soul. It's hard to make yourself want to connect with him or identify with him at all. And the thing that did it was actually his small acts of kindness and generosity in the tiny, when in, the, in the moments where he actually gets some money. Yes. He ends up yes. giving it away. Like yes. Again and now, again. You've, you've hit on one of the most essential parts of this novel, which is he, he commits the crime for reasons that he describes to himself, and yet as soon as he gets any money, his natural instincts of kindness and goodness propel him to give it away to those who need it more. And I think one thing that happens for the reader, at least my students when they read this novel, keep coming back to the question, why did he commit this crime? And there's so many different possible reasons that he would do it. Uh, But it's very difficult to settle on any one reason. Well, it makes me actually think about the series that we've been doing, uh, Robin, because we've been talking to people who have served time. And in fact, we've also spoken to somebody who is currently serving time. And the question of why did they do it, it's interesting that that has been less the question. Um, you know, in, in all cases, I think they sort of attribute it to a combination of poverty plus or minus intoxication. Mm-hmm. And, um, but more has been how do they move forward from it? How do they take responsibility uh, for it? I'd like to play you a clip from the interview we had with Bobby Paisant, who's currently serving time at the Maine State Prison for aggravated assault and robbery. Here's that clip. If someone knows me and they get to know me when I'm not high, when I'm not doing, making bad decisions, they know that I'm a very caring person that I, and that I want to add something to your life. I don't want to take away. And so to, to have become that person, that, that, that was that was stealing and taking away from people and neglecting the person who I am, my core self, you know, you know that, that eats me up. That eats me up, and, you know, and, um, and I can't say sorry enough times. So what do I do? I think about it, and I say, okay, well, moving forward, because I have to move forward, what do I do? And what I do is I make a decision on, okay, I have to get a better relationship with myself. That's going to enable me to get a better relationship with other people. So what do you think Dostoevsky would say in response to Bobby? Oh, my. Well, that is extremely powerful to hear Bobby saying this. And when it, it, you know, for, for Raskolnikov, very far into the novel, um, he could not own what he had done at all. And finally, in a scene shortly before he confesses to his uh, crime, 
he realizes it was not the old woman that I killed. It was myself. Um, and he, he comes to something that is so much like what uh, Bobby is describing of neglecting his core self and that he had to find a way to, to turn that around. Um, and that, that is a, a tremendous moment in this novel when Raskolnikov comes to this realization. It doesn't take him all the way there, though. He still he realizes that he has harmed and hurt himself terribly by committing this crime, but he is not yet able to give himself over completely to repentance and remorse. And why do you think that is? What's the block there for him? I, I think the block for him is that he continues to feel that in some ways he, he was justified in committing the crime, that his, that his situation was such that it was justified. Um, and that for him is very difficult to, to let go of. And, and when he does begin to let go of that, it's in prison. Um, where, where he's able to find a kind of freedom in prison and to move on to becoming a different person. One of the things that I've been learning as I've been doing this series is actually how gradual the process of reclaiming freedom is after leaving prison. And so this sort of either or, the kind of black or white freedom, lack of freedom, turns out to be way more complicated than that. In fact, maybe that's a moment. I want to play you another clip from an interview uh, with Mike, who is currently on the outside. He's served seven years for a drug charge. And he speaks about uh, what he learned about freedom both in and outside of the prison. And let me play that clip now. So tell me, what is it like for you now that you're on the outside with your own job and you're, you know, you're free? to go back in there and to work with these men. I remember the first time going in and just being so incredibly scared and also feeling really, really amazed at how that kind of dissipated and feeling almost feeling like I was going home. Um, in addition to the work that I had done inside around the Jericho Circle, there was... I also had some really profound spiritual experiences inside prison and so I think going back going back inside really brought up all that and really brought to the forefront my search my search my search for freedom and my search for inner freedom and interesting how the metaphor of being in prison and be, and feeling being outside and released in a lot of ways then feeling like I was still imprisoned. Well, I had touched upon something while I was inside. I had, there, was, there was a point in time where I had touched upon this peace, this serenity, this actual feeling of wholeness. And, and really after being outside for four years and being busy, 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 you know, going to school full-time, working full-time, you know, 
in relationship with my son, being in personal relationships, and just the whole immensity of trying to make up for lost time. And I, even today, I sometimes I feel like I'm I'm a I'm just a rock rolling down a hill, and that I'm imprisoned by the momentum of my life. Do you think that Dostoevsky knew about that, about the struggle to feel free even once you're oh out? Oh, my. Yes, I think he did. And he, he gave to his character, Raskolnikov, an insight that in some ways resonates very powerfully with the kind of insight that Mike is expressing here. Um, when he's in prison, um, he thinks he might at least have raged at his own stupidity as before he had raged at the monstrous and infinitely stupid actions that had brought him to prison. But now, when he was in prison and free, he had reconsidered and reweighed all his former actions. Um, and uh, actually, the, the word free is italicized there. So... Raskolnikov, too, begins to find in prison a kind of freedom, a kind of space to look at his past and then move onward into his future. And I think that for Dostoevsky himself, we, he underwent, while he was in prison, in, in Siberia, he underwent a kind of conversion experience. And as Mike was talking, I, you know, it, it just seemed to have so much, um, in common with, with what we think happened to Dostoevsky. It's not that he actually ever describes it. You know, he's written all these novels and all this journalism and he doesn't actually ever come right out and describe his own conversion experience. But I think it's pretty clear that he had one. That was Robin Foyer-Miller, professor of comparative literature from Brandeis University. As we close this series, I want to share a little more personally about how diving so deeply into the experience of incarceration has affected me and what I've learned from doing this. I started out somewhat reluctant and even afraid to do a series on incarceration. I almost did one a year and a half ago, but then I got really scared off. I'd found someone on the internet who'd done some speaking about being incarcerated, and so I was going to approach him to do an interview. And then I found out that he had reoffended by assaulting a woman, and I was stopped in my tracks. I had all these concerns. Why get to know these people, I thought? What if they want to come find me after release? And what if they really are dangerous? What if the whole thing is really foolish? So I put it off. But I was working on it in my mind. And slowly I realized that my attitude was really the very essence of stigma, this idea that someone's very identity has been spoiled and is beyond repair. I'd completely bought into the idea that having a prison record means something permanent about a person. Basically, I was the living embodiment of the very person that I hope this series can reach. So I decided it was time to really explore this. 
It was only once the series had started that I understood just how blinded I was by my own prejudice. Not only did part of me believe that once a criminal, that person might never be trustworthy, I realized that my bias worked in the other direction too. It was hard for part of me to believe that a good person might also become a criminal. And then I remembered that during my training, I was working with a young woman who I very much cared about. She was being accused of being a prostitute by her sister. She was really humiliated, and I was outraged on her behalf. Later, she was arrested for being a prostitute, and I was so blinded that it was only after I had visited her in jail that I realized that she actually was a prostitute. Somehow in my mind, the two categories of nice, good, likable person that I could identify with and criminal had almost a permanent wall between them. And I just hadn't understood that people can be both good and be arrested for a crime. That people make mistakes that do not define their whole identity. The story of this series has been about really coming to understand this. I have met so many people now with a criminal record who I admire and am greatly moved by. People whose depth and integrity have helped me to make better choices. I especially want to acknowledge Liz, Mike, Bobby, and Sonia, each of whom had the courage to share their stories on Safe Space Radio. Stories of arrest and imprisonment and building back their lives. In response to this series, two listeners contacted us to tell their stories about the stigma of incarceration. The first story is from Cheryl from Topsom, Maine, whose son Derek was arrested last July. He stole a boat from uh, Boston Harbor, and he was driving erratically up the harbor, and the Boston Marine Patrol and the Boston police stopped him and, and asked him who he was, and he responded uh, and said he was Peter Pan. And that um, made the papers in Boston, but it also made the papers back here in Maine, and including our own local town newspaper. And on the surface, if you read the article, it's really funny. Uh, even me, I was laughing through my tears. And, uh, but then there's a story behind the story, and nobody ever hears that. And uh, that is that He's really sick. He's sick with mental illness, undiagnosed, and with addiction. I'm not in denial about what he's done because he did commit crimes, but he doesn't belong in a jail cell 18 hours a day, the other six eating and watching TV. He's, he's not getting any treatment, and he needs help. I feel lost. I, uh, I feel like the real battle that we're fighting here is finding treatment for him in a system that is so much more broken than the people that it's trying to serve. And so it, it brings about a lot of emotions. I feel anger. I feel anger at Derek for making these choices and the cycle of addiction and mental illness. And I feel pain. I feel his pain. I have my own pain. This is my son. I love him. And he's, he's a good kid. And I feel laughter. I feel laughter because you read that article and it really embodies his comedic spirit because he's a really funny kid when he's well. And I feel contradiction because he's in jail and I want him out. I want him getting treatment. But he's in jail. I want him in jail because the alternative is so much worse. 
and I feel judgment. I feel others' judgment, but more so I feel my own self-judgment uh, because what could I have done differently to prevent any of this? And I feel fear. I feel, you know, what is going to happen? When is it going to be the last time? Is this going to be a lifelong cycle? And how many more lives will Derek get before he loses the one that he has left? So I wonder how many other families and inmates are feeling the same way that I'm feeling. The stigma really becomes about no one wanting to talk about it. It's not, it's not that somebody's said anything and, and said anything really judgmental. It's, it's the fact that nobody wants to talk about it. We have one more story for you. This one is from a listener who served time himself when he was a teenager. My name's Curran, and uh, a little while ago you had Michael Leppi on uh, talking about his experiences as a public defender. Uh, I'm Michael's stepfather. Uh, as a teenager myself in the 1960s, uh, at one point uh, when I was 16, I got arrested uh, for possession of marijuana. And uh, at this time, it was uh, quite a uh, scandalous sort of thing. Uh, and in fact, I was taken before the uh, California Youth Authority and uh, put in their custody you know, for an indefinite period at their discretion. Kern went on to become a doctor, a professor of pediatrics, focusing on adolescents at risk. It was one day a few years ago when he was sitting in a meeting with his colleagues and a group of trainees from medicine, psychology, and social work. One of the um, social work trainees uh, came in, and she was kind of enthusiastically talking about the cases that she saw in Central Juvenile Hall and um, how catastrophic the life backgrounds and family backgrounds of these kids were and about how their potential was so limited uh, by their, uh, the traumas they'd had. And after she had told her story, I told her I had actually been in, ju in juvenile hall and in the California Youth Authority as a as a teenager, and I was the person who was probably the most senior person there in the group. Uh, and her jaw just dropped open. It just, I mean, literally dropped open. And it was such a contradiction to her own expectations, um, which I felt were, you know, innocent and naive, but far too pessimistic. Um, so in my own mind, I was thinking that I just wonder if people had looked at me in this way um, and how invisible I would have been for me and for the colleagues that I've worked with who've worked with kids who've been through very difficult experiences, some of which involves the juvenile justice system or in some cases even the adult justice system. Focusing so much on that has failed to reveal the kind of resiliency that people have and the strengths that they have to see their potential as human beings and children uh, to, to develop in successful and productive ways. Thank you to Cheryl and Curran for your generosity and courage in sharing these stories. I want to tell you about two other big things that I learned while doing this series. The first is about racism in the criminal justice system. 
and the second is about the overwhelming number of legal and cultural obstacles to building a new life after release from prison. I learned through this series the extent to which our criminal justice system is both shaped by and contributes to racism in this country. I encourage you to read the book, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. I read that book to prepare for this series and it was a profound eye-opener. I learned from her that people of all races use and sell drugs at similar rates. But in some cities, black men are being admitted to prison on drug charges at 20 to 50 times higher rates than our white men. So let me repeat that. People of all races use and sell drugs at similar rates. So you'd expect the prison population to reflect the population breakdown of this country, which is about 12 to 14 percent African-American. But instead, in certain cities, black men are 20 to 50 times more likely to be admitted to prison on a drug charge. Why? Because racism is at work at every step in our system. Policing efforts are targeted to poor neighborhoods with a high percentage of people of color. Crack cocaine, a drug more commonly used by African Americans, is penalized at a hundred times higher rate than powder cocaine, a more expensive drug commonly used by whites. So today, nearly 60% of all male inmates in state prisons are African American, and in some cities, over half of the young black men are imprisoned, even though they use and sell drugs at the same rate as whites. Policing practices jury selection and sentencing work together in a self-perpetuating system that both reflects our racism and feeds it. And if this weren't bad enough, we come back to a central focus of this series, which is the profound stigma that shapes a person's life after they've had a prison sentence. In many states in this country, if you have a history of a felony charge, you cannot vote, you cannot get into public housing, you cannot get student loans, you cannot get food stamps or other public benefits, and you cannot serve on a jury. In some states, over one-third of the young black men permanently cannot vote, literally disenfranchising African Americans all over again, only this time under the cloak of law and order instead of overt racism. Understanding this has changed the way I look at our entire criminal justice system. It's also clarified for me that working to undermine the stigma of having served time is not just a matter of doing the right thing. It is for the seven million people currently on parole or on probation in this country, the difference between getting to have a life or not. When you learn that someone has a criminal record, remember, each of us is more than our worst mistake. close, I want to direct your attention to several inspiring organizations that are working to help people either during or after their time in prison. The first is the Public Voice Project in Boston, which we featured during the first interview in this series with Lanny Peterson. The Public Voice Project helps former prisoners tell their stories in a public forum. The second is the Restorative Justice Movement, which we highlighted in the interview with Dick Snyder. Restorative justice brings together offenders, their victims, and the affected community to create a plan for restitution, rehabilitation, and actual healing. The third is the Equal Justice Initiative, focusing on prison and sentencing reform to protect children from being sentenced as adults. The fourth is the Jericho Circle, a group that we featured in our two interviews with Mike. 
Jericho Circle leads men's groups in prison to teach emotional literacy and create safe space for authentic self-expression within the prison. The last opportunity I want to highlight is to invite you to consider volunteering inside a prison yourself. Deputy Warden Mike Tausick at the Maine State Prison in Warren is looking for inspirational group leaders and teachers to lead computer science and art classes. Retired teachers are especially wanted to help out with adult basic education and GED preparation. If you're interested in helping prisoners here in Maine rebuild their lives, call Deputy Warden Mike Tausick at 207-273-5300. That's 207-273-5300. This is the end of our series on incarceration. If you didn't get a chance to hear other shows in the series, or if you only got to hear part of this show, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com. You can download the show there. You can email the link to a friend. You can also sign up to get a weekly email with that week's show. You can download us from iTunes. You can like us on Facebook. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, to Maurice Lennon for the intro music, and to Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely. Mm-hmm.